So what do you do when the circumstances of life outside of your control push you into the corner of life to where you are now isolated from friends, isolated from coworkers, isolated from your normal way of life and beginning to experience a sense of loneliness and discouragement and maybe even despair? Well, there's an amazing story in the Old Testament about a, a prophet named Elijah that describes just that situation. Not unlike the situation that many of us find ourselves in in this COVID-19 crisis. What does it look like to look to God in those moments when it feels like we're alone? Long before we were forced into isolation, we had already as a community largely chosen self-isolation through looking at our phone, through looking down at a screen, through choosing to interact with things digitally rather than relationally. And what this moment is helping bring to the forefront of all of our consciences is that that is not enough. Humans were made for community. Humans were made for relationship. Humans were made for face-to-face interaction. And when that is unnaturally stripped away and when we're forced to back away from that reality, there can come a sense of isolation and desolation and loneliness that is deep and is profound. And so the question becomes is, does God speak to us in our isolation? And if so, how does He speak to us in our isolation? And friends, for that, I want to turn to a story in the Old Testament that maybe some of you know, maybe some of you don't know. Maybe you're new to Christianity or new to Jesus or never read your Bible. There's a story in the Old Testament, the story of Elijah. And it's an incredible story that I think speaks to our situation we find ourselves in today. Here's what we need to understand about isolation. It will result in one of two things. It will either result in desolation and despair or transformation and hope. There are no other options. And so our question that we want to wrestle with today is how can we move through this season of forced isolation in a way that transforms who we are, not results in us becoming full of despair and despondency and discouragement and losing all hope. And that's the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. You know, more and more people in our culture today are finding that they can't live without the divine. But in our globalized, pluralistic, technological culture, the question that people ask is not, should I believe in God, but rather, which God should I believe in? And that's the exact kind of moment that Elijah is living in. Ahab is the king, and Jezebel is the queen, and they have instituted forced idolatry. So if you're a worshiper of the God of Israel, they are going to put you to death. They've killed all the prophets of God except those who've gone into hiding. They've erected temples to Baal and are forcing people to worship this false god. And as as a result, God has withheld his blessing from the land. No rain, no crops, no food. Then he sends Elijah to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel to send him a message. And and, and Elijah has a a price on his head, a bounty on his head. They've been looking for him, trying to kill him. He marches right into the capital, and he stands in the king and queen's presence, and he throws down a challenge. He says, my God against your God, one day, one competition, 
You show up with your prophets, I'll show up by myself, and we'll settle this issue once and for all. Who is the real God? It's an amazing throat. And it's like Elijah saying, I'm, I'm going to run out Madison Square Gardens, and we're going to have like a DD cage fight to the death to see who's the one true God. So they gather all the prophets of Baal, 450 to be exact, and there's two altars. And here's the game. They're going to set up their altars of stone and set up the wood for the fire. And they're going to cut the bowls for the sacrifice offer, offering, but they don't get to light the offering. The challenge is, whose God can set the altar on fire? So Elijah being the gentleman lets the prophets of Baal go first. And 450 prophets of Baal begin chanting and screaming and singing and praying and cutting themselves and doing all the pagan rituals that they do to try to get their pagan god Baal to answer them from heaven with fire. And as they go on and on and on, Elijah begins to mock them. He starts saying things like, hey, maybe you should call out a little louder. Maybe your God is asleep. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he went on a trip. He actually even says at one point, maybe he's on the john going to the bathroom. He's just absolutely full throttle mocking them publicly in the presence of King Ahab and, and Queen Jezebel as they're desperately calling on their God to answer their prayer with fire. This goes on all day, no answer, until they drop dead from exhaustion. Then Elijah steps to the table. And he says, okay, now it's my God's turn. And he instructs his servants to put wood on the altar of stone, 12 stones stacked on top of one another, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. He takes his bull and he butchers his bull and he sets the offering on top of the altar. And then he has his servants take four jars of water and soak the altar. He has them do it not once, not twice, but three times. And they soak it until it's absolutely saturated through running water dripping off the altar, pooling in puddles around it. And then Elijah steps back and he lifts his eyes and his voice and his hands to God. And he says, today, Father, would you show yourself to be the one true God in all of the universe? And out of the blue sky comes a bolt of lighting. And the, and the text says that fire from heaven consumed the altar. It consumed the bowl. It consumed the wood. It was so white hot, it consumed the water. And it consumed the very stones that had made the altar itself. And before all of the watching world, God delivers the knockout punch and settles once and for all. He is the one true living God over all gods. And in that moment, all the people said, worship God. And they turned to him and they said, the God of Israel is the one true God. And they put to death all of the false prophets of Baal. And now Elijah's got a price on his head. Ahab tries to kill him. He flees to the mountains and God tells Elijah, now I'm going to send rain. Now I'm going to send provision. Now that I've proven myself God, I'm going to do it again by restoring the fruit of the land. And so Elijah finds himself in the mountains looking to the east, and there's no clouds, no clouds, no clouds. Pretty soon he sees a cloud the size of a man's fist rising from the sea. And he tells his servant, go tell King Ahab, he better get in his chariot and ride for town because there's a rainstorm coming that will bog his chariot down if he does not get on it. And in that moment it says the power of God filled Elijah so that he ran and he outpaced, he outran, he beat Ahab's chariots being pulled by pristine thoroughbred horses. And he outran King Ahab and he beat him back to town just as the rains came and the famine comes to an end and God proves himself that he is the God over all other false gods. 
He is the God over all creation. He's answering the question, which God should we serve? Which God is the one true God? And to which God steps forward and says, uh, that would be me. Now that's the context of the story that we're stepping into now in chapter 19. And as we read through the story, we want to ask ourselves, one, what can we learn about ourselves from the person of Elijah? And two, what can we learn about God himself and how he interacts with us in the story of Elijah? Chapter 19, verse 1, we begin there. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets of Baal with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. And then he said this, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Here's the first thing that you and I can learn about ourselves from the story of Elijah, and it's this. We're more fragile than we'd like to admit. You and I are more fragile than we would like to admit. Now, many commentators say that this is lousy storytelling and lousy editing because it's totally unrealistic. How could Elijah go from one of the greatest victories of the entire Old Testament? I mean, like a making a public spectacle of the false god Baal, beating 450 prophets of Baal with one hand tied behind his back, seeing the fire of God fall from heaven and consume the altar, and then praying rain back into the land and being filled with the power of God and outrunning thoroughbred horses and a chariot. And three verses later, he's running for his life. And the commentators say, well, this is lousy editing. I mean, I mean, this could never happen. The reason commentators say it's lousy editing is because commentators are clueless at times to the reality of the human condition. Commentators are missing the fact that you and I can be strong as an ox one day and weak as a lamb the next. And, and what this story is showing us is, is the deep humanity of the characters of the Bible. These aren't plastic characters made up with phony stories. We read these and we go, my goodness, why would Elijah be running for his life? Why would he be afraid? He just saw the Lord provide in this miraculously amazing way until we reflect for about two seconds on our own life and realize you and I can go from strong and courageous off a cliff into weakness and cowardice in minutes. I mean, we're seeing this in our own culture right now, right? one of the most robust and strong economies we've seen in a generation, and almost overnight reduced to nothing. And many of us have that experience. We, we, our savings account was pretty good, or we were feeling good about our job, or we were pretty upward mobile, moving along, and then just out of nowhere, boom, it's all over. Savings account dried up. Future employment uncertain. Our, our, very, our very future unknown. And what it's revealed to us in this time of this COVID-19 crisis is just how fragile you and I are, just how fragile humanity is. 
Elijah goes from being up on the mountain, laughing at the prophets of Baal, to literally letting his servant go. And he's not letting his servant go because he doesn't need him anymore. And he doesn't have a servant because he's rich and had people to serve him. He has a, he has a servant because Elijah's in ministry, and he's quitting the ministry now. He's, he's, he's letting his staff go, and he's like, I'm done. I'm out of here. And we see him fall in, in four verses to a place of such despondency and despair that he is suicidal. Now, maybe some of you have wrestled with feelings or thoughts of suicide. And to be very clear, Elijah here is, is, is very clear about the fact that he has no right to take his own life. But he asks God to. He says, God, would you take my life? I'm done. I'm tapped out. There's no hope for me. My life is over. I'm in utter despair. Just, just, just end this for me and take me home. And maybe you're in a place because of isolation, where you've come to a place of despair or despondency, and you've realized how fragile your life really is. Friends, two things I want you to know. One, that's okay. If you and I walk through life with a false sense of confidence based on our own ability to secure our own future, we will build our hopes on a false premise because you and I don't have near as much control over things as we'd like to think. And secondly, friend, as we're going to see in the story, God is with you in your isolation. The second thing we can learn about ourselves in this story of Elijah is that fear can distort our perspective of reality. Look at chapter 19, verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and the word of the Lord said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responded in verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are all trying to kill me too. And then a few verses later, God asked him the same question. He responds, verse 14. He replied, or the word of the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? To which he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And here's what's happened. Elijah's isolation has caused him to lose perspective on reality. He's lost perspective on himself. He's lost perspective on the world around him. And he's lost perspective on the God he claims to serve. The perspective he's lost on himself is this. I've done everything right. Uh, I instituted my program. I, I, I'm, I, there's nothing that I can be blamed for here. I've done all I could do. Like, 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 and now I'm being mistreated. He loses perspective on the world around him, saying like, hey, they've abandoned you, God. They're not worshiping you, God. I did everything that's right. And there's still a bunch of stupid schmucks, which is not true because earlier we saw that in them responding to the provision of God, they turned to worship God. And lastly, he loses perspective on God himself because he's like, obviously, you don't care about me or, or you would be providing for my needs here and my life wouldn't be in jeopardy. And what oftentimes happens is isolation causes us to lose perspective on reality. And, and here's the danger, friends, is you and I can begin to think, you know, those Baptists are a little too stodgy or those 
Presbyterians are a little too much living up in their head, or those charismatics are, are a little too wild and excited, or those whatever group of people we think of, and we and we begin to think that we're the only ones with a balanced perspective, we're the only ones that see the whole board, we're the only ones that have it all together. In fact, if we're going to be honest, you and I are probably the only two people that really have it together, and and. Most of the time, I question whether you do or not. I mean, that, that's the per perspective we can get in, right? When in reality, when we think we see everything for what it truly is, it can actually be the moment of our greatest blindness. I see God in the whole picture. I see others and the whole story. I see myself perfectly. When in reality, isolation can bring blindness. And we can disconnect from who God is. We can disconnect from where He's working in the lives of others. And we can disconnect from what He wants to do in us and our actual reality. We might not be doing as well as we think we're doing. We may not see everything we think that we see. We may not have a handle on everything we think we actually have a handle on. And one of the blessings of isolation is that it can awaken us to the true reality of who God is, how He's working in those around us, and where we are in relationship to that. The first lesson we learned from Elijah is that we're more fragile than we like to admit. Secondly, fear often distorts our perspective on reality. And thirdly, what you and I need more than anything is to hear from the voice of God. Now it's interesting to note he went on this journey to Mount Horeb it says, verse 8, So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Mount Horeb. Why is he going to Mount Horeb? Well, you might not recognize that name, but you may recognize another name that it was given, Mount Sinai. This was the very same mountain that Moses had gone to to meet with God. And what we can know about the story is although Elijah is isolated and feeling cut off and alone, he knows that he needs to hear a word from the Lord. And so often when you and I get isolated, we're listening to a voice, but it's not the voice of God. We're listening to the voice in our head. We're listening to the voice of our circumstances. We're listening to the voice of the news media. We're listening to the voice of the entertainers. And we're watching Netflix ad nauseum and Amazon Prime ad nauseum. And we're, we're binge watching TV shows. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is, in our times of isolation, the voice we need to hear most from is not the cultural voice. It's not our own voice, but the voice of the living God. And what we see in the life of Elijah is that we realize we're more fragile than we thought we were, that fear often causes us to lose perspective on reality. But even in fear, and even having lost perspective, if we can get to a place where we can hear the voice of God, that time of isolation can be redeemed, and we can move from desolation to transformation. Which leads us to our second observation, not only what we can learn about ourselves from the story of Elijah, but what we can learn about God in the story of Elijah. Maybe some of you are out there watching going, okay, I'm, I'm asking myself the question, which God should I look to? Which God should I serve? And maybe you're considering the God of Christianity. And I want to show you the singular lesson that we learn about God in this story expressed in six different ways. And here it is. I'll give it to you in a sentence. What we learn about God is that in our times of desperation and isolation, God comes to us with personal care and infinite wisdom. I'll say it again. In our times of desperation, despair, desolation, and isolation, God comes to us with personal care and infinite wisdom. And we see that expressed in six unique, and I think you'll find surprising ways in our story. We'll begin at verse 5. Then Elijah lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. 
He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched Elijah and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Mount Horeb. The first expression of personal care and infinite wisdom we see God extend here towards Elijah is that God comes feeding, not beating. God comes feeding Elijah, not beating Elijah. Now, what do I mean? Well, look at the picture. Elijah was called by God, assigned by God, sent by God to represent God to the pagan nations. And Elijah is just a few moments off of one of the most epic, greatest victories ever recorded in the Old Testament. And now he's running for his life. And what God could have said is, what are you doing? Why are you being such a coward? Why are you exercising such a lack of faith in me? What happened to the courageous, faith-filled Elijah? What happened to the bold Elijah? How come this coward Elijah is showing up? You know, she issues one threat and, and, and you run. I just brought fire from heaven and consumed rocks. You don't think I could protect you and take care of you? But what God does not do is beat Elijah, berate Elijah, lecture Elijah, call him to repent. He sends the angel of the Lord to bake him a cake. And before you say it, I'll say it for you. It was angel food cake. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, good joke. <laughs> What's the point? God recognized that Elijah was a physical being and had physical needs. And one of the mistakes that you and I as Christians can make is that we over-spiritualize everything. And sometimes you don't need to pray. You don't need to listen to another sermon. You need to go for a walk in the mountains. You need to take a nap. You need to eat a really good meal at a takeout restaurant somewhere. You need to enjoy a really beautiful piece of art. God's saying, I understand that you're human. I understand you have physical limitations and you've surpassed those now, which means you are lacking the capacity to have a proper perspective on the situation. So I'm going to come and I'm going to meet you where you're at. I'm not going to lecture you, berate you, or beat you. I'm just going to feed you. It's an extraordinary expression of God's personal love for us and His infinite wisdom to us. You know, I experienced this with my dad growing up, and it wasn't until I was a dad looking back that I realized kind of the genius of my dad's approach and my mom's approach too. But whenever something was hard or whenever I was facing something challenging in high school or college or stuck in a problem or going through some form of trial, I'd come home and dad would go to the kitchen. And he'd get out the potatoes, and he'd get out the ham, and he'd get out the eggs, and he'd make me McPherson potatoes with grilled ham and, and eggs over easy with a large glass of orange juice and two gigantic slabs of toast slathered with butter and jam. And he wouldn't talk. He wouldn't ask me questions. He wouldn't bug me or grill me or what's going on. He'd just whistle, and he'd cook. And I'd sit there and I'd smell the smells and I'd watch him working and he'd bring the plate over and he'd sit down and he'd go, there you go. This, this, this should take care of some problems. Why don't you dive in there? And I'd start eating and pretty soon we'd start talking, but not before he'd taken care of my physical needs. And dads, this is a total side note. In this unique time of isolation, there is no reason why you shouldn't be having seven dinners a week with your family. 
eat together, prepare food together, do dishes together, laugh together, talk together, joke together, spend time around the dining room table. Thank God that sports have been canceled and music lessons have been canceled and violin lessons have been canceled, all which are amazing. But what a unique moment in history to put pause on all of that and just enjoy being at home around the dinner table with your family. Don't miss the point that one of God's personal expressions of infinite wisdom as the Heavenly Father is not that He was constantly berating and correcting and lecturing His kids, but that He was meeting their physical needs when they were hungry. And maybe the most spiritual thing you could do, Dad, right now is to go fire up the barbecue and fix your family a really fun dinner tonight. Wouldn't that be awesome? And just ask good questions and listen to your kids and see where God might lead the conversations to go for you to spiritually feed your family even as you meet their physical needs. So so the first expression of God's personal care and infinite wisdom to Elijah is that God came feeding Elijah, not beating up Elijah. The second way we see God express his personal care and infinite wisdom is that God comes listening to Elijah, not lecturing. Look at chapter 19, verse 9. And there Elijah went into the cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then Elijah gives his answer. And then a few verses later in verses 13, we have again, And then the voice of the Lord said to Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? It's a really striking part of the story that God in all of his infinite wisdom doesn't come downloading information, but rather drawing Elijah out. And you got to remember that when God asks questions, he's not looking to get information. He's looking to give information. (laughs) It's not as if God was like, my gosh, Elijah, like, what are you doing here? This, you look terrible. What happened to you? God isn't looking for information. He's lovingly, tenderly asking questions so as to open up Elijah's heart to dispense information. He's looking to posture Elijah's heart to receive what he has to say by asking questions that draws Elijah out because God is not a mechanical God. Sit there, shut up, take notes, and repent. God is a highly relational God who wants to be in relationship with us. He wants to dialogue with us. He knows what you think. He knows what you feel, but he wants to hear you say it to him. And when he comes to us in our isolation, he oftentimes will take steps to meet our most basic physical needs. And then he's there asking us, hey, how are you doing? I want you to hear God asking you today, friend, right now. How are you doing? Why are you here? What's going on while you're here? What are you thinking? Friends, God wants to have that kind of back and forth personal interaction with you and I, especially in times of isolation. So there can be a two-way dialogue between you and the divine. So we learn that God expresses his personal care and infinite wisdom to Elijah through feeding, not beating. Secondly, through listening, not lecturing. And thirdly, God comes in the ordinary, not the extraordinary. Look at chapter 19. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. 
Now notice, it's not saying that the fire or the earthquake or the wind wasn't from God. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. It's simply saying that, that, that God wasn't in it. God wasn't speaking through it. God was going to speak to Elijah through a much more simple, ordinary way. And here's the point. Oftentimes, you and I are looking for the spectacular. We're looking for the extraordinary. We're looking for God to you know, drop a million dollars out of the sky, then we'll know He's real. Or we're looking for God to heal our bad hip, and then we'll know He's real. Or to take away the tumor of cancer, and then we'll know He's real. We're looking for God to do the extraordinary when more often than not, friends, God is moving in the midst of not the extraordinary, but the ordinary. Make no mistake, Elijah had seen God move in extraordinary ways. I mean, fire from heaven, altar consumed, rain coming from a cloud the size of a man's fist that brought life back to the region. Elijah has seen God move in extraordinary. But here's the thing. Elijah couldn't live there in the extraordinary. Where Elijah lived was the ordinary. You know, I had a friend who told me he had a friend who was a rock climber. And he climbed to the top of this towering sphere, spear, whatever you call it, rock point monument, something like that. Obviously, I'm not a rock climber. And he climbed to the top of this really tall, rocky thing, and he's up on top, and he's looking around, and everywhere he looks, he's looking down. He's higher than anyone else. He's in this extraordinary place. And he said in that moment, he realized, my gosh, nothing can live up here. Not even a weed and that's so true of you and I. We're looking for that high moment, that extraordinary moment, but, but we can't live in those moments. We were made for the ordinary. We were made to do dishes and to do uh, loads of laundry and to go to work and to come home. We were made, God made us to function in the ordinary. And friends, that's where God wants to meet us. And in this time of, of kind of forced, extreme, unnatural isolation, the ordinary has for many become maddening. Like, if I have to spend one more day locked inside my house, like I've heard so many moms say, and here's what I want you to hear. God is longing to speak to you in the ordinary. Don't long for the extraordinary. Don't pray for the extraordinary. Pray for God to speak to you and meet with you in the ordinary moments. That's where God lives. That's where God wants to move, to speak, to interact with you and I. We don't have to climb Mount God and see fire fall from heaven to hear from the voice of God and to interact and to meet with and to have an intimate experience with the living God. He wants to meet you and I in the most ordinary moments of life, which is good news for the many of us who are trapped in the most ordinary life we have ever had. It may be that in this COVID-19 cave, God may want to meet with you and speak to you in ways that you have never experienced before. So we see God coming in, expressing great love and infinite wisdom in feeding uh, Elijah, not beating him, in listening to him, not lecturing him, in coming to Elijah in the ordinary, not the extraordinary. And fourthly, we see that God comes with the assurance that He's always at work in the most hopeless situation beyond our wildest imaginations. Look at the end of the story. He's been talking with Elijah. Elijah's explaining why he's despairing. And listen to what Elijah says. I am the only one left who serves you, and now they're trying to kill me too. Hear Elijah saying, I'm the only one left, God, that you, I'm, I'm your only play. I'm the only guy on the team you have left, and they're trying to kill me. And if they snuff me out, your team is done. 
Your team is wiped out. Your team loses. They don't even lose on the field. They're not even on the field anymore. And listen to what God says. Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all of whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him in worship. What's God saying? In Elijah's moment of isolation, where his perspective is limited, where his view is short-sighted, and where the focus has moved to himself, God comes lovingly, personally, and tenderly to assure Elijah that he is working wildly beyond his craziest imagination. Did you hear it? Elijah said, I'm the only servant you have left, and they're trying to kill me too. And God says, actually, I have 7,000 servants who have not bowed their knee to Baal and who are worshiping me and dedicated their lives and allegiance to me. What's he saying, Elijah? I am working 7,000 times greater than you thought I was working. (laughs) I am working 7,000 times greater than you could see me working. I am working in ways you couldn't wildly imagine. You're stuck here alone in the cave, and that's okay. I love you. I'm here for you. I'm going to walk you through this. But while you've been here feeling sorry for yourself and kind of playing the coward, I've been out moving in the world and working in the world and rescuing in the world and redeeming in the world and bringing about my purposes in the world because I'm God. I'm over all things. I send fire from heaven. I consume altars. I rule over the hearts of kings and queens. I cannot be thwarted, and my purposes will come to pass. Isn't that awesome? And maybe in this season of isolation, you've lost hope. What is going on in our country? What is going on in our world? Is God still at work? And the assurance of God to us as His people this morning is, most certainly I am at work about 7,000 times more than you could even possibly hope to wildly imagine from where you're sitting. Friends, let's not miss the point that in our isolation, our view is limited, our perspective is small, and what we see isn't the whole story. God is at work, dear friends, beyond what we could wildly imagine in our lives, in the lives of our family, in the lives of those around us, Which leads me to the fifth expression of God's kindness and wisdom to Elijah. And it comes in verse 15. When Elijah had finished speaking, the Lord said to him, Okay, Elijah, that's great. Now go back the way you had came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. What's he saying? He's like, I get it, Elijah. You have a limited perspective. You can't see where I'm working. I understand. I'm going to meet your physical needs. I'm going to love you where you're at. I'm going to meet you in the ordinary. I'm going to assure you that I'm at work. And then look what he does. He comes with invitation, not condemnation. And the invitation is to join him where he's working. What God could have done in that moment, Elijah, you little ant, you little narrow-minded, small-minded, fear-based, faithless coward, I have shown up for you time and time and time again, and you reward me by running from your enemy and 
burying your head in the sand and hiding in a cave. What you didn't know, Elijah, is that I've got 7,000 people ready to go to war if you just come back and show up. But you know what? I, I now see what you're made of. I now see the true Elijah. I'm glad we had this interaction. You're on the shelf. I'm done with you. I will do this on my own. God could have absolutely said that, but what did God say? Elijah, I know you're tired. Let me feed you. I know you're weary. Let me encourage you. I know you're discouraged. Let me speak to you. I know you've got some beefs. Let me listen to you and ask you questions so you can get it out. Okay, I get it. Now let me assure you that I'm at work. Are you done? Okay, come on. Let's get back to work. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? He comes with an invitation for Elijah to join him in his work, not condemnation and benching him uh, on the sidelines. And friends, God is coming to you, even in this moment of cultural isolation. And he's assuring all of us he's still at work. And he's inviting us to join in his work. So the question becomes, the prayer becomes, Father, where are you at work? And open my eyes to see where your hand is moving so I can join you there in the work of God. Dear friends, I want you to hear and know and believe that God has real, meaningful work for you to do right now even in this season of isolation. And God's grace to us is that He doesn't condemn us in our, in our limitations. He issues an invitation to join Him where He's at work. And that, I think, is just an amazing expression of God's love to us and a demonstration of His infinite wisdom and that He knows sometimes we'll fall short and lose perspective and He keeps loving us anyways and picking us up anyways and inviting us back into the work. He may be saying to some moms this morning, Hey, look, I know you're tired. That's okay. I'm working here. Come on. Come join me. Come on. Let's come back into the schoolroom. Or let's come back into the dining room. I'm working here, and I'll give you the strength to love these little kids. He might be talking to some who are in the healthcare field this morning. I know you're tired. I know you're discouraged. I know you're worn out. That's okay. But I'm working here. I'm moving here. Come on. Let's go back to work. Let's go back to work. Friends, make no mistake. You don't go to work and invite God to go with you. God is already at work where you're working, and He's inviting you to join Him there. You need to see your job. You need to see your business. You need to see all of your relationships. You need to see your home. You need to see your children as places where God is working, and He's inviting you to join Him in the work He's doing. You and I get to be a part of the divine, bringing healing and redemption and restoration and shalom to the brokenness around us. That's the most staggering invitation on the table today for you and I, folks who are broken. Folks who are, that God would look to us who are screwed up and messed up and full of fear and cowardice and faithlessness and go, you know what, I can work with that. Why don't you join me where I'm at? So friends, the question becomes, as you look around you today, where is God moving and working and how could you join Him there? The last expression of God's personal care and infinite wisdom to Elijah comes in verses we've already read. Verse 11, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire came a gentle whisper. The sixth expression of God's personal care and infinite wisdom is that He came to Elijah in grace, not in judgment. He came to Elijah in grace, not in judgment. You might say, what do you mean? Well, all through the Old Testament, we see that fire and wind and earthquakes are signs 
of God's judgment. And, and, and I know I'm reading this to you over a video and you're sitting in your pajamas eating a bowl of cereal in the comfort of your own home. So it's hard for us to connect with this. But uh, imagine what's happening here. Elijah is on the side of a mountain, okay? He's in a cave. And there arises such a storm that rocks are being torn out of the side of the mountain and rolling down the hill, crashing through trees and exploding at the bottom in this violent sound. Wind is howling everywhere. Fire is coming down from the sky. This, this is like cataclysmic, apocalyptic scene here. The earth is shaking. Rocks are exploding. It could not be a more violent picture. And the text says that God wasn't in the wind, and He wasn't in the earthquake, and He wasn't in the fire. And then He came as a, as a gentle breeze and a soft whisper. What's the point? God's saying, Elijah, I could have come to you in the fire, and it would have been warranted. I could have come in the earthquake, and you could have been consumed by it. I could have come in the wind, and, 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 and blown you off the face of the earth as a sign of my judgment, and it would have been justified because of your lack of faith. But I'm not coming for you in the fire. I'm not coming for you in the earthquake. I'm not coming for you in the hurricane winds. I'm coming to you in a gentle, relational, intimate, father-to-son whisper. What's the point he's saying? He's saying, I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of kindness. You see, in the New Testament, in a later story, Jesus would talk, have a conversation with Elijah and with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. And in that conversation, Elijah got to see the, the man who received the earthquake in his body, the man who received the fire of God's judgment in his body, the man who absorbed the wind and the hurricane storm of God's wrath in his body so Elijah could experience the still small voice. Elijah got to experience the grace of God because there would be a greater prophet to come than Elijah, namely Jesus Christ, who would absorb the storm of God's wrath. And friend, that reality is true for you and I today too. Jesus Christ has absorbed the the wrath of God's storm so you and I can know God's still small voice as our Heavenly Father. Maybe you're a person who's thinking about Christianity. What I would love for you to consider is the wisdom of God in the Christian worldview. Some worldviews take a physical approach. We're physical beings. You got a problem. You need to work out. You should, you should take this medicine. You should take this pill. Some worldviews take a more psychological perspective. We're psychological beings. What you need is counseling and what you need is the couch and what you need is to process these things. Other worldviews take a very kind of mystic, spiritual, moralistic worldview where, hey, you need to do the right things or you need to get your act together or you need to clean yourself up or you need to pray more, repent more. And what we see here in the story of Elijah is, is the beauty of God in addressing the full human, psychologically, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. If your worldview reduces the complexity of the world we live in to one or two pieces, but does not address the whole man, the whole woman, the whole person, it is not a worldview that can hold the weight of the reality that you and I live in. This is the mark of a worldview that can carry 
the weight of the reality that you and I live in, a worldview that addresses and speaks to the physical, the mental, the emotional, the psychological, and the spiritual. And friends, that's the worldview I'm inviting you to consider. The worldview of Christianity, the worldview of the God who made you and I and the world that we live in, he speaks to the mental, he speaks to the emotional, the relational, the spiritual, the physical, and the psychological. And he's speaking to maybe some of you even now. And he's saying, I wanna be in a relationship with you, I wanna forgive you, I wanna walk with you, I wanna heal you, I wanna restore you, I want to encourage you, I want to fill you, I want to bind you up, I want to put you back together, I want to strengthen you. God is for you and he wants to meet you in the ordinary moments right there on your couch, listening to a sermon online. He wants to connect with you because he's a relational God, not a mechanical deity. He wants to come into your life, forgive you of your past and your sins and all the things you think disqualify you from being in his presence or being a child of God or being a worker for God. And he wants to invite you to be a part of his kingdom and his work because he's a relational God who has made a way through Jesus Christ who absorbed the storm of his wrath so that you could know the still, small, sweet, personal, intimate voice of God the Father, even now where you're sitting. Friends, this COVID-19 crisis has forced a kind of isolation experience that many, if not most of us, have uh, never experienced before. And some of our personalities are loving it, and some of our personalities are, are, are going crazy, but here's the reality. No matter what your personality is, this moment of isolation can be wasted unless you're taking steps toward God to hear His voice. And so my question for you to consider is, what voices are you listening to in this moment? The voices will either lead toward desolation and despair or transformation and hope. And the voice that will lead to transformation and hope is the voice of God. Because here's the reality, friends, of isolation. Isolation and the experience of it can kind of be like this cabin I'm in. It's out in the mountains. It's miles and miles and miles away from civilization. And inside this cabin, I have little windows and slivers of views that makes me think I see the whole picture. But what I don't know unless I got outside of this isolated cabin of my own thinking is that there are vistas of glory and vistas of beauty and vistas of breathtaking mountains and trees and snows if I would get outside the isolated sound of my own voice and take a few steps following the voice of God to see what He has to say. And here's my encouragement to you, friends. In this time, would you ask the Lord, Father, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to speak to me? What do you want to show me? What do you want to teach me? What do you want to work inside of me? Friends, it may be that this season of isolation becomes the deepest season of transformation you have ever experienced. Not because you watched one more episode of some stupid show on Netflix, but because you learned to hear the voice of God and you attuned your ears to His finest whispers. You picked up your Bible and began reading your Bible. You began filling your home with the soundtrack of hope that Pastor Jared's put together, singing songs of hope and truth and light and life and Jesus into the bones of your household. Maybe you take the verses we're putting together and you begin memorizing and meditate on the Word of God so that in doing so, you get to hear the very voice of God Himself speaking to you in the finest whispers of His Word, who He is, so that your perspective can be restored 
your courage can be infused. Your faith can be built up and we could come out of this moment, church, not weaker and paler and more tired. We could actually come out of this season of isolation stronger with more faith in the tank, more hope in the tank, more joy in the tank, more confidence in the tank that God is at work all around us. And more than that, He's inviting us to join Him in that. Dear friends, it would be a tragedy for us to come through this season of forced isolation, weaker in our faith, more discouraged in our faith, because we took that moment where busyness had been removed and noise had been silenced, and we filled it with a different kind of busyness and a different kind of noise. Friend, while we're in this COVID-19 cave, my encouragement to you is to listen to the voice of God in the ordinary moments of doing laundry, talking with your kids, having a conversation with your spouse, calling friends, reading the word, look and listen for the voice of God. He longs to speak to you in this moment. Maybe you're feeling trapped. God wants to set you free. Maybe you're feeling cut off. God wants to connect you. Maybe you're feeling alone. God wants to be with you. Maybe you're feeling isolated or frustrated. God wants to speak to you and give you new direction. Maybe you're feeling discouraged or despondent and friend, God wants to give you hope. So how does a big God help in the hard time of isolation? He tends to our most basic needs. He meets us where we're at. He speaks to us in a way that we can hear. He gives us something meaningful to do. He reminds us that He is still at work even when we can't see it. And He speaks to us through the still, small whisper of His voice, reminding us that we don't get judgment, we get grace. We don't get fire and wind and earthquake. We get relationship with the living God through the man Jesus Christ who absorbed the storm of God's wrath. And friend, I'm praying that wherever you're at in this season of isolation, that the bigness of God and the personableness of God and the wisdom of God will become more and more plain to you, that you might see Him for who He is, that you might hear His still, small voice speaking to you today, and in doing so, you would see vistas of glory you had never seen before. Not because God removed you from your place of isolation, but because God spoke to you intimately and personally in your moment of deepest isolation. Friend, never forget, God oftentimes does His best work in the hardest of places and the most difficult of times. And in this season of isolation, I can promise you this, God wants to and is willing to and is waiting to speak to you if only you would have ears to hear.